Hello and welcome to series two of The Jewelarian with me, Josie Goodbody, author and jewellery lover. If you also love jewellery, gemstones and their remarkable stories, then this podcast is for you. Please do leave a review on the platform you're listening with and I would be so grateful for any donations via coffee. You can find the link in the episode details. Even the cost of a coffee would help me keep this podcast going from strength to strength. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all very well. Today, my guest on The Jewelarian is Cynthia Morrow, who is the co-founder of Covet, which is the world's first ever shared ownership of fine jewellery. Hi, Cynthia. How are you? Hi, Josie. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. We're in the middle of packing up our house. So although I don't don't have two children with me, they're at one of their grandmothers, I have boxes around and my dog who doesn't really understand what's going on and kind of keeps jumping into suitcases and and getting in a a panic. It's quite nice to have a break and talk about beautiful jewellery for a bit. I haven't even started packing up my beautiful jewellery. I don't have quite as beautiful jewellery as you do in your incredible vault at Covet. But I've got some really fun pieces that I've collected Mm. since we moved into this rental about 18 months ago. So anyway, first and foremost, can you please explain to all of us what Covet is? I mean, I've already said it's shared ownership, but a lot of people might not be able to get that concept of shared ownership of jewellery. I mean, people share cars. And, you know, we have loads of car clubs in the UK and I'm sure around the world. You know, people share boats. Yes, they do. (laughs) I remember in Monaco, you could easily, well, I suppose that was more rental, charter boats, but also yachts, gin palaces even. You know, there's a lot of shared luxury products. And I know there were a few shared, for example, handbag company where you can rent or share ownership of Hermes, Birkin or whatever. But of course, we're talking about jewellery. And so please let us know what it's all about. (laughs) Yeah, so Covet, we say we're revolutionizing fine jewelry with our shared ownership and access model. And really what it is, is taking pieces that normally, because of their expense, people don't wear them every day and creating higher utilization by sharing them. So for our co-owners, they fall in love with a piece And they buy a 20% share in it. And that's a lifetime share. It can be gifted. It can be put in your will, uh, just like it were your own piece. That share is transferable and lasts the lifetime of the piece, which, as you know, can be forever. Because a lot of the pieces that you look and talk about are from hundreds of years ago, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, we basically give access to that piece every month for five consecutive days. And they have 12 floating days a year. They can add on to it so they can take their piece on vacation. And if their piece isn't available because another co-owner has it, we'll offer them something else out of the covered vault. So they always have access to their piece or another piece. And we also provide access to the covered vault if they want to borrow a piece for a special occasion at a nominal fee. So it's really like an expansive jewelry box, if you will, because it just expands all the possibilities of the jewelry you can wear, own, and enjoy. And we take care of all of the hassles. We remove them for you, insuring it, cleaning it, maintaining it, transporting it. So all you do is it arrives in a pristine condition. It's the first time. It's like falling in love every time as it comes to your door. And, you know, it's pristine and gorgeous and you love it. You wear it, you enjoy it. And then you send it back and no worries, no hassles. I mean, that's incredible. What made you decide to start Covet? 
Had you shared a piece of jewelry with any of your girlfriends before? Oh, that's a good family? question. Yeah, what was um, the kind of the thought, the concept, the you know how you came up with the concept of it? Well, it's a fifteen-year journey. So I have always been a jewelry lover since I was as old as I can remember. I had a I had a tiara at age five, and I wore it constantly. And part of that was because my mother is Armenian and Armenians love jewelry and it's part of their DNA. And so, you know, it just became part of my DNA. Yeah. I want to circle back to your Armenian heritage a little bit later because I think it's fascinating. It is fascinating. But in any event, I was having dinner with some girlfriends of mine and a friend of mine asked me about a watch I was wearing, a diamond Concord watch that was a gift. And she said, how much does a watch like that cost? And, you know, she was saying, oh, you know, that's so expensive and you wouldn't wear it all the time. It's just for special occasions. So later in the conversation, she starts to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, my husband bought me a diamond necklace for a celebration when the company she worked for went public. And later she showed this necklace to me and it was a Riviera necklace. And I was like, you're wow. never, like, she was a really sporty woman. I thought you're never going to wear this. And she said, I know, let's share. You can wear the necklace when you wear the watch and I'll wear the watch when you wear the necklace. And so all of my life, I worked in consulting and I was constantly coming up with business ideas. And so this idea stuck in my head. But of course, 15 years ago, I was way ahead of my time. In fact, I remember calling a friend with an idea to share clothes peer to peer. And she said to me, no one's ever going to do that. (laughs) So of course, you know, that idea baked in my head. And about three years ago, I decided to give up my career as a global consultant. I ran a huge consulting practice worldwide. And, you know, I wanted to do something interesting. And so I wanted to do something in the shared economy And in the luxury goods space, and all of a sudden, I remembered the story. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's jewelry. I love jewelry. Let's do jewelry. Because no one was doing it. And still, to my knowledge, there are no shared platforms for fine jewelry. There are some rental ones in the U.S. that we talked about, I guess. My goodness. I mean, it really does sound incredible. So can we talk about how it works? You know, is there a monthly fee? Do you buy jewelry? You mentioned 20%. What happens if you've only got three people that's 60% and how do you make up the rest of the 40% of the value of the jewelry I mean jewelry as we know is expensive and you're not going to be sharing any old pieces of jewelry I mean I think the whole point of it is to have jewelry that you wouldn't necessarily buy yourself the whole 100% of it because either you can't afford it or you just think well I'm not going to be wearing it enough It's the same as a new car. I'm going to be driving my car every day. I mean, of course, I would be wearing my jewellery every day in my car with my tiara on. Like Princess Margaret, I'd be bathing in my tiara, the Baltimore tiara, no less. And I love the beginning of Dynasty when Joan Collins is in that enormous bubble bath with all her kind of beautiful jewels on. Of course, the worst place to wear jewellery is in the bath. (laughs) <laughs> or in the sea or the swimming pool. Sea is probably the worst. Yeah. yeah. And there's that also amazing video of Elizabeth Taylor swimming. Oh, yes. Is that that cat on TV and she's swimming at the Hotel du Cap? And then her first husband comes with this amazing set of rubies, I think it yes, is. Yes, from Cartier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to cover before we go crazy about Elizabeth Taylor. How does it work? The kind of minutiae. Yes. In essence, you're buying into, as I said, a 20% share. So 
you're paying the 20%, you put a deposit down. And when we have two to three co-owners lined up, we purchase the piece from one of our partners. So sometimes our partners will even retain a share. We always retain the fifth share. And so once we have the piece, they're able to wear it. We also loan them a piece from our vault while they're waiting for their piece to be available. And the technicalities really are, we have to do a lot of vetting with the people. We run a vetting mechanism on our platform. We have an interview with the people. We visit them in their home to make sure they are who they say they are and they live where they say they live. And of course, if the piece is over 10,000 pounds, it must be kept in a safe because of our insurance when it's not worn or carried. And so we need to do all that vetting to make sure everything is appropriate. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about that piece of it is the co-owners really appreciate that because then they know everyone else is being vetted as well. And so it takes a little bit of the nervousness about sharing jewelry away. The other thing is people are always very concerned about what happens if I lose it. You know, they feel like there's more of a responsibility because other people own a share. And typically that's why please stay away from one of a kind pieces because they can't be replaced. But if something can be replaced, then they'll be replaced for the co-owners. You know, in essence, there's a monthly fee, you can pay it monthly or annually. It's about one and a half percent to 1.75% of your share price. So it's like 10, 15, 20 pounds a month, which covers the insurance, the cleaning, the maintenance and the delivery. And so we hand deliver everything right now because we're only within the greater London area. But as we grow bigger, we'll be looking at meeting the people, having an agent meet them, but then looking at couriers delivering and picking up. My goodness. And branching out, kind of New York, Paris. Can I run your one in Paris? Yes, you can. (laughs) And Monaco. I'll be head of Monaco in Paris. Yes, who wouldn't? So regarding the actual purchase of the jewellery and deciding what you're going to buy, because of course you don't actually buy it until you've got enough people, you know, 60% of the value. How do you advertise? How does that work? Do you come up with five pieces that you think, right, we'd love these five or we'd love two of these five? Because obviously you do have people who already own a Riviera necklace, for example, but you want to buy a matching pair of earrings or something completely different. How does that work? So the real idea behind Covet is to create a community of jewelry lovers who want more by sharing jewelry, right? And so the idea is that for them to curate what's in the vault by telling us what they covet, what are the pieces that are on their covet list? Like I have a covet list. I've had one for 20 years where, you know, it has 10 pieces of jewelry on it. The minute I get one and everything moves up and something comes on the bottom of the list. And so that's where the name covet came from because I kept saying, I don't have a bucket list. I have a covet list and that's all filled with jewelry. And so interestingly, we're curating the collection now. And one of the things we learned was that often we'd have these events and we'd bring you know, 50 pieces of beautiful jewelry. We had an event where we had close to 750,000 pounds worth of jewelry. Oh my goodness. I know. And it was amazing because there were about 50 people there, but almost everybody gravitated towards these eight pieces. It was really, really interesting. interesting. And one of them was one we weren't even going to put in the event. We just did it on a whim because none of us thought it was a piece we would want to wear. What was it? It was a black and white diamond heart and matching earrings. And 
it wasn't something I would wear, but people loved it. And I think, you know, skewed towards the younger audience. The other thing we do is we invite people from their mid-20s all the way up to 60. And you see different pieces attract different age groups. But I think the thing that we really want to do is have the people build their covet list, tell us what they covet so that we can then go out and get a broker to get it or get a partner on board to bring that onto our platform. So right now we curate everything through partners we have who either manufacture jewelry or jewelry brands. We're signing up quite a few new brands right now. So there'll be more pieces in the covet box shortly. And do you keep them in your safe at home so you can pick them out whenever you want? <laughs> well, that's a good question. If the you ones do, we, then I'm going to be setting up a rifle farm for you. Right. <laughs> the ones we do own, because we do own about 15 or so pieces right now that are shared. And I'll also talk about what else we're launching. But those are all kept in a vault. And then I have some new pieces arriving today, which will join the vault. And, you know, I won't say where that vault is located. No, of course you won't. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, all those jewelry thieves who listen to my podcast. I know. And we'll have to then get my uh, detective, Jemima Fox, out. Uh, Jemima Fox. <laughs> Great book. Oh, thank you. Can't wait to hear what happens to her next. Oh, my goodness. Next, she's in Paris. So I'll have to be launching a cupboard in Paris. There you go. The book. next. The win-win situation. It is. What do you hope to accomplish by bringing ownership and access? I think for us, we see it as bringing beauty, joy, and confidence to people who love jewelry, right? Because that's what it's all about. I mean, most people don't just wear jewelry for the heck of it. They wear it because it speaks to them. It's beautiful. It makes them feel confident. It brings them joy. And, you know, I didn't say this in the beginning, but the whole idea around covet or what we call covetism is a world of abundance. So we can all have more by sharing. And we don't have to necessarily own things in a traditional way that we can share. And by doing that, we get more and we get more of the joy, more of the ownership, and we get to keep more of our money to do other things with it, like have experiences or own more jewelry in terms of, you know, more shares of jewelry. Is it a community where you might know who the other owners are? Or is it quite private like that? Because I was just thinking, you know, there are women that I look up to an awful lot, whether they're in the public eye, as in they're famous, or they're people who are in the public eye, but, you know, they're someone like Natalie Massonet. She's famous, yes. she's not an actress, that's what I mean. But you look right. at her, oh my God, she's incredible. I don't know, I really believe in the spiritual side of jewellery as well. And God, I'm sounding a bit crazy here, but, you know, I like to think that if you wore <laughs> a piece of jewellery that Natalie Massonet wore, some of her expertise might rub off on me. But there do you, you go. Are you quite private? I mean, I'm sure you've got clients who would be happy for it to be known and you've got clients who don't it's interesting because when we first started out we did quite a few focus groups and it seemed that more mature women were happy to let people know their pieces were shared or even know who was sharing the pieces whereas those who skewed younger gen x gen z wanted to kind of keep it hidden and so we don't publish who owns what, and it's all very private, but we do have a couple people who do know each other and each of them bought at a different time. And so they didn't know they were sharing the piece, but they do now because they both had a sit in the same event. And I said, oh, somebody else has your piece. <laughs> so I'll have to lend you a different piece. And then the cat yeah. was kind of out of the bag when she saw this friend wearing her bracelet. Oh, 
as long as there are no fights out of there. No fights. Well, no, she was really happy because she got to wear another exceptional diamond bracelet. So who wouldn't be happy with that? Absolutely. I'm obviously going to put the images up on the website when I launch the episode in September. But can you give me your three most show-stopping pieces? Ah, that's a good question. I think this bracelet I was talking about, the one that is shared by these two friends, it's an Art Deco style diamond bangle. And it's got this incredible filigree diamond cuff. And it's basically a couple inches wide. And it's set in white gold. And it's really gorgeous. You know, you can't miss it. I would say that's a showstopper. The other thing we have in our vault right now is Bacchus and Strauss diamond watches. And their watches, are exceptional so it would be hard to pick out one but they do have the lady victoria which the band is all diamonds set in hearts like heart shapes around the band and two diamonds within each heart and i'm not doing it justice so please everyone look at the pictures but i mean you wouldn't wear that watch every day most people wouldn't you know 99 but boy wouldn't it be great to wear it to a black tie event or a wedding. It's just exceptional. I love pretty much all the jewelers on Bond Street. But at the moment, I'm kind of obsessed with David Morris. I've been obsessed with David Morris for a very long time. Jeremy Morris hosted my book launch of my third novel at the store in 2019. And it was the most brilliant event. Oh, it was so much fun. I was seven months pregnant and I had all this incredible Paul Roger champagne because they sponsored the event. And all I wanted to do was just drink lots and lots of glasses of pink champagne. (laughs) And I was so annoyed that I couldn't, so I kind of kept two bottles back for when my baby had been born. Oh, good <laughs> but, idea. But I love the colours of David ah. Morris and the gemstones. I mean, the pink conch pearls, the pareva tourmalines, the black opals, which of course aren't black at all. I mean, they're right. incredible. I mean, if I was to be one of your clients, which I'm thinking more and more that I will be, um, if you'll have me, um, have you. you know, I could say, oh, I would love this piece but I just cannot afford it could you see if anyone else would be interested in it as well is that a possibility yes I think that is again the design of the whole model it's really for people to come to us and say this is what I covet and I rather not invest the full amount for whatever reason and can you get it for me and we'll find other co-owners from the community and I love David Morris as well exceptional (laughs) jewelry I have stocked Jeremy from time to time. But, you know, a lot of the big name brands wanted to wait to make sure Covet was going to be a success, you know, in terms of uh, the risk taking wasn't necessarily there. Well, but, with why the- is it, but why is it up to them? I mean, this is what is interesting, because actually you're buying it as a client. I mean, if I go to Graf and I say, right, you know, here's a hundred thousand, I'd love to buy that pair of emerald earrings. They're not really going to turn around and say no to me. Why would they necessarily say no to you? I think it's more about what the relationship looks like, right? So we want to put a select group of their pieces on our platform. We want to advertise that. We want them to advertise that. We want the partnership to be known. And of course, you know, a lot of people are like, well, brand reputation, let me wait and see. I see what you mean. Success. I'm sure, you know, Net-A-Porter and I know Farfetch had this problem where they basically worked with all these small boutiques before the big brands would actually join them. I think Stella McCartney was one of the first, wasn't she? Because she knew Natalie and she was very supportive right from day one. Yeah. So we're building out our collection with probably 10 or so independent British designers. And so... Our collection will expand that way. And we have a couple of brands who are coming on board that are more name brands. 
really exciting. I'm so thrilled to have you here because it's such a good concept. And I used to get so depressed actually when I was working at Graph and I'd see these people come in and, oh yes, you know, buy these pieces of jewellery. I mean, it was like playing Monopoly, you know? There's no way I was going to be able to have them. Occasionally, Lawrence Graph allowed me to borrow some pieces, but that was incredibly rare. He wasn't really into that. Now, as you mentioned earlier, your love of jewellery kind of comes from your mother's upbringing. And you're obviously from the States, so I never even touched on that, but you're living in the UK. So firstly, what brought you here to the UK? And then I'd love to talk a bit about Armenia, because when I was living in Argentina, which was at the end of 2012, I fell in love with an Argentine and lived between Buenos Aires and and Uruguay, which is where my next novel series is is set between, which is I'm loving. And that's also about jewellery, of course. But I had this great friend. He was in his 70s or he is in his 70s. And his mother was 90. So unfortunately, I don't think she's alive anymore. But she came over from Armenia at the beginning of the last century, I think, pretty much as a child, I think. And his father was also Armenian. And I mean, it's a devastating story, but it's also very fascinating. And of course, their jewellery history is as fascinating as the rest of Armenia's history. So could you let us all know a little bit about your connection with Armenia? Yeah. So I came to London. I was sent here by the company I worked for because I was running a U.S. consulting practice. And the idea was to make it global. So I was sent over here to start the European practice. And so I built that practice over the six years I did the job to be, you know, a great business. And I ran this global consulting practice for five, six years before I decided, you know, it was time to hang up that shingle and start a new life and find jewelry. But my mother's Armenian. My grandparents on the Armenian side came to the United States. And I think my grandfather came in 1913. And then he went back to Armenia. This is a great story. He went back to Armenia looking for a wife. He settled in Maine. And he saw my grandmother walking through the town square and basically found out who she was, who her mother was, and said, you know, I want to marry your daughter and take her to America. Yes. Well, it turned out to be romantic. My grandmother was 13 at the time. And uh, my great grandmother was a very savvy woman. And so she negotiated that, you know, if he married my grandmother, that he would then take the rest of the family, because, you know, as of 1914, 1915, there was a whole genocide of Armenians. And so Luckily for all of us, my grandfather said yes. My grandmother went on a boat to America at 13 by herself to marry a man she didn't know. But she was 13. I mean, she she got married at 13. She got married, I think she was 14, maybe. Golly. And yeah. And then later, all of my great grandmother and a whole bunch of other relatives came over on my grandfather's dime. And they all settled in Portland, Maine, where they had this whole community there. It's amazing. It was amazing. And my grandparents seemed to be very, very loving couple. How old was your grandfather? My grandfather was 24. So he was 10 years older. He was 10 years older. And so, you know, they had three kids, one of which was my mother. And my mother was very enamored with glamour. It was kind of funny. Like, she was the middle child. And she loved Hollywood. She loved Hollywood movies. And of course, she loved jewelry. And, you know, my grandmother had some beautiful pieces. And I have five of those gold bangles that were my grandmother's and then my mother's. And then she gave and them did to they me. they come from Armenia? 
they came from Armenia. They were made in Armenia that she took with her. They were. They were. Where in Armenia was your family from? Uh, Constantinople. Okay. My gosh. Yeah. So things were heating up there and people were already in the hills fighting wars and, you know, fighting different factions was my understanding. And so it just seemed to my great grandmother, it was time to get out of there. So, I mean, it's such a tragic story. As I wrote in my emails, a friend of mine, Georgie or Jorge, he was involved in the writing of a story called Araxi and the German consul. And I helped translate it into English from Castellano, Argentine Spanish. And then I got a friend of mine involved in the actual proper kind of copy editing and self-publishing of it. But I was swept away by the story and the history and the tragedy of how the Armenians were just sent out of their country and massacred. And it's just kind of unbelievable that it was 100 years ago. Yes. It was 1916. Yes. My gosh. Yes. Well, I think there's many parallels to what happened with the Jewish Holocaust as well, because the Armenians were very industrious, very smart, very successful. They were Christian. And so... In some ways, they were persecuted for all those things, right? And it's interesting because the jewelry side of it was Armenians were making jewelry before most nations were living in stone houses, right? So thousands of years before, you know, BC, they were already making jewelry. They were already wearing it as part of, you know, their ceremonial attire. And much of it is not just for the aesthetic, but it's also for their amulets and talismans to ward off evil spirits. In fact, my mother used to pin a blue bead to my underwear, which was to keep the evil spirits away from me. Oh my God, that's unbelievable. (laughs) I know, that's crazy, isn't it? Did you do that to your daughter? No, I didn't pass on that tradition. But, you know, it's so interesting because she really did believe that. So... But I also feel sad that those kind of things, whether people think they're crazy or whether whatever, I mean, I, I love all those kind of traditions and those beliefs. I do and, too. And I don't think they're crazy at all. And, and I think that one day there'll be none of those kind of traditions anymore. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I think some of the things still live on, right? You know, when you think about the symbolism, like the pomegranate and their symbol for eternity, the eternity symbol. I mean, those things still are part of classic Armenian jewelry. So if you go to Armenia and you're walking, you know, on the road in the capital, uh, Yerevan, you will see young people wearing these symbols as part of their jewelry. And so, you know, I think it's just amazing. Well, the evil eye has never really gone out, has it? I mean, people (laughs) still wear it. It's kind of like just... It's getting more popular. You see a lot more of it. Funny enough, this friend of mine, Jorge Bartperonian, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, he absolutely loved and gave his mother, well, she loved it, a lot of Ilias Lalalunis jewellery. And partly it was very symbolic to her being, you know, Armenian. And she just very much loved this jewellery that he made of a kind of replica. I mean, replica sounds bad, but it was fine jewellery, but replicating antique Grecian jewellery. So, yeah. Cynthia, I think we've got to end it there, although I could talk about this with you forever, but we'll still carry on talking. And I have so loved chatting to you about the little bit at the end about your Armenian heritage, but also about this brilliant platform that you have founded. And I think it's going to go bigger and bigger. And and obviously you are hoping to branch more internationally because I've got a very international audience. I have fans, I like to say, maybe not ah, listeners in Vancouver and Sydney and Cape Town. So it's great that it's going to hopefully mushroom and get bigger and bigger. 
Because obviously, if people want to share it and they live in Paris, you know, that's going to be more expensive to get it over there. So to open up different satellite vaults would be incredible. Yes, we are. And I also want to say, and this is for your listeners who are the first to hear this, is that we are launching a subscription on September 6th. And that will allow people to try out the vault and borrow pieces without having to pick a particular piece. And there's an entry price point for the first subscription, which is about 300 pounds. And so they can get to know us, they can get to know the joy of owning or accessing jewelry through Covet. And we believe that's the gateway into expanding our business. Oh my goodness. Well, that's very exciting. Thanks, Cynthia. Thank you, Josie. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. And thanks to all your listeners for joining us as well.